0: You get to the top of the mountain, you ease up. It's natural. You don't even know you're doing it. Next thing, you're losing to the fucking Clippers in November.
1: Welcome back to the official Winning Time podcast from HBO. I'm Rodney Barnes, executive producer on the show. Next time I see you, then I'm going to bust your ass. (laughs)
2: Listen up, world. This here cookie...
3: My
1: woman,
2: PLA, Fuck Boston!
1: Today, as always, we'll start with Jeff Perlman, whose book helped inform our series. Next, retired NBA All Star Baron Davis talks about the show and how the league has changed since the Showtime era. To finish, production designer Richard Toyon shares how he went about creating the visual world of Winning Time. But first, a little recap. This episode, titled Beat L.A., was directed by Sally Richardson-Whitfield. We open with the Lakers celebrating their 1982 championship win over the Philadelphia 76ers. But just as Pat Riley fears, the team gets cocky and they lose to Philly in their 83 rematch. Throughout the following year, Kareem connects with his fans. Norm Nixon is traded away. Magic finally gets with Cookie. And Honey Kaplan sues Jerry Buss for $100 million. It's a lot of money. The episode ends just before the 1984 showdown between the Celtics and the Lakers. A quick note. Some of these scenes, moments, and instances are fictional. We add them to tie facts together and weave a narrative. Again, some things are fictional. But they're inspired by true events. All righty. Let's do this. I'm sitting again with the great author, Jeff Perlman, who wrote the book Showtime, which inspired our show. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about the 82 championships against the 76ers that went right and the 83 championships that went wrong. So what went right in 82? (laughs) The Sixers didn't have Moses Malone. This is
0: true. Yeah. And now we get to 83, and they do have Moses Malone. Can we just say for a minute, I'm actually being serious about this. Yeah, man. Moses Malone is the most underrated player in NBA history. You could really make a good argument he's a top 10 all-time NBA player. Big
1: time. Why do you think that is? Because ABA, coming out of high school, all of that stuff,
0: what do you think it is? A couple of reasons. Number one, he spoke with a stutter, so he's he not very good with the media. Yes. That's number one by far. Number two... It's the same reason Artis Gilmore is kind of underrated. Like, these guys were just, like, hard-nosed, dogged, rugged, not a ton of flash. Maybe it was just a time period. Maybe because generally he wasn't on great. I mean, he was on some really good teams, though. I don't know. Do you think it was
1: just Moses Malone dominating, or was there something going on within the Laker team chemistry, all of that stuff, that
0: contributed to the Sixers winning so Soundly. I think a couple of things. Number one, the Moses Malone factor is huge. Number two, it's just hard to stay motivated. It's easy to talk about, oh, right. we should win it again. It's really hard to have the same juice year after year after year once you've won. It right. really is hard. Right. This is why teams don't repeat very often. So the Sixers, they get Moses Malone. He just yeah. took Kareem and basically snapped him over his knee in that. T- I mean, he beat the crap out of Kareem. They have Dr. J, who's still excellent. Yes. And they were well coached. Billy Cunningham, yeah. good coach. And also, like, I will say, like, something the Sixers found out and something the Celtics later found out is, like, the way to beat the Lakers is to beat the snot out of them. It's just okay. wise you punch them in the nose.
1: But management had to see this was coming. They had to know early on when the Sixers are having the success that we're going to have to do something because there's good chance we may
0: go up against this thing. It's not always as obvious as you think. First of all, like nowadays, we can watch every game everywhere. True. It's not like the Lakers are seeing the Sixers play every day. You'd read the box score. Actually, you would think it would be more technologically savvy in a team office, but it actually was not. What was the state of the Laker organization during that period, that year? I'd say transitionary, in a way. They're still adjusting to this new idea, new coach. It was Magic's team at that point. And also, like, I will say... The Lakers didn't really have at that point, pre-Byron Scott, the pull-up gunner. Right, mid-range guy. Mid-range guy, and also three-pointers were starting to be utilized a little more. There was real value in that. And after a while, there were limited returns, I do think, to the Norm-Magic pairing, where after a while, it's like, all right, these guys do kind of do similar things.
1: Why do you think Kareem stayed on the Lakers? It seems like every year there was some kind of threat kareem was either going to leave the team retire something
0: why do you think he stayed i mean i think first and foremost like this is his home and like yeah he's from new york but it's not like he was of new york at that point right you know he had no ties to the knicks he wasn't going to go play for the nets also like for all the like he's so sullen and he's so quiet and we don't like the guy had an ego right and like this was his team and that 33 lakers jersey was an iconic yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And to just pick up and leave again, you know, he already went from Milwaukee. He got to a rebuild. yeah. Yeah, and the Knicks sucked. How did L.A. perceive Kareem? One of my favorite Kareem stories ever that I used in the book, Lakers are in Salt Lake City, and some guy sees Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he walks up to him, and he's like, Kareem, you are my favorite player of all time. My wife just gave birth today to our son, could you please sign an autograph for me? It's This is the greatest thing ever. And Kareem goes, no, get away. <laughs> and like, it's hard to be all affectionate to a guy like that. But nobody hated Kareem. Like, it wasn't like, he certainly was loved in LA, but he was loved as a player and as a figure and as a sort of iconic Laker. He wasn't loved in the way Magic is, where you'd see him, Magic, give me a hug.
1: Do you think Kareem's house... Burning down, and that sense of empathy that people have when you go through loss, in a weird way, endeared him to
0: L.A. a little bit more. I mean, I'm not saying it had a long-lasting effect. Yes, but him losing his house in a fire, he had this really extensive jazz collection yeah, for yeah, records. Yeah, yeah. They he lost them all. It gets out in the newspaper. They lost them all, and people start showing up with records to give Kareem jazz records from their own collections. Ah, Kareem, I know you love whoever you know, John Coltrane, here's blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, this was him knowing them, is fans showing up with records and saying, Kareem, you've meant so much to me. I know you love jazz. Here's a record for you.
1: Do you think that was a byproduct of the times, you know, that level of distrust that comes with being of that era and that type of thing? Do you think that played into it, or do you think
0: that was just him? Oh, no, I think it played into it a user. I mean, when he was with Milwaukee, he changed his name. That was not received well. At all. By the Bucks by fans. It's who is this militant, who is this follower of Elijah Muhammad, who is this follower of Malcolm X. It was really met with a backlash. Right. I don't think you just lose that because no. you go to sunny L.A. Exactly. There's a lot of layers there. I always say, one of the things I love about writing books is people say, he's an asshole. Right. And what you ask as a writer is, well, I want to find out what made him that. Is he an asshole? What little moments along the way exactly. led him to become the same? And with Kareem... Yeah. There are eight million little moments. Yes, his coach using the N word. That, that was just about to bring that up. Yeah. Milwaukee rejecting him in the name change. Right. I mean, people using you on and on and on and on all yeah. add up to the figure you see.
1: Both in our show and in Laker lore, something really, really big happened around this time. Norm Nixon gets traded. Yeah, what do you think contributed
0: to Norm getting traded? A couple of things. Number one, Jerry West could not stand him. Yeah. Could not stand him. Didn't like coaching Norm Nixon. Didn't like having Norm Nixon on the Lakers. Thought Norm Nixon was a bad influence. I'm just not a fan of Norm Nixon. So that's a big one. Number two, and this is very strange, they really wanted center support for Kareem. And the Clippers had Sven Nader, former UCLA center. So the idea of acquiring a backup center for a malcontent and... By the way, the Clippers are going to throw in this guy they just picked in the draft, some shooting guard out of Arizona State named Byron Scott, who, not for nothing, grew up in the shadow of the forum in Inglewood. That's a pretty good deal. Clippers are dumb enough to do it.
1: Do you think this was finally Wes's sticking
0: it to norm, or do you think it was just a byproduct of the team needing to change and evolve? I don't think Jerry West—I know Jerry West wouldn't make a trade just to stick it to a player. I think he was very happy to be rid of the player. I think he'd been trying to get rid of the player for years. He obviously wanted the David Thompson trade to happen. Right. Didn't happen. Got overruled. No, I think this was actually a wise trade for the Lakers. It actually made sense for the Lakers. They got younger and they got better. And they got a shooting guard when they literally had no shooting guards. I mean, it's funny that they wanted Swen Nader. Like, Scott's an all-time great Laker.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the buildup to the Celtics-Lakers rivalry in 84? My relationship with the Larry Bird-Magic Johnson rivalry was in college. What was the level of intrigue in 84 now? Because some time has passed. They've been in the league for a while. Was it to the same level now that it was prior to when those guys
0: got drafted and they were still young? And what's this all going to be? Very much so. The three stars, if you think about the NBA at that point, are Magic, Bird, Dr. J., And Dr. J was on the decline. Yes. And you did have these two guys who entered the league together, who played twice a year against each other. They're on opposite coasts. They symbolize, to the fans, completely different things. White, working class, Boston. Mm -hmm. Black, flashy, Los Angeles. Showtime, gritty. All the cliches you could pick. Some true, many not true. But the perception of it is very real. The Celtics have this history of dominating the Lakers in the NBA Finals. They're the two marquee franchises, along with the Knicks and the NBA. And it's just this thing that has been building and building and building and building. And the other thing is, is that the teams mirrored each other very well, personnel-wise. Okay, Kareem, Robert Parrish. Right. You know, ultimately you get James Worthy, you get Kevin McHale. You have Byron Scott, you have Dennis John. Like, there were like these real ropes across from east to west that sort of connected the teams. And I mean, Magic and Bird were on top of the NBA. They were the two rising, about-to-be-in-their-prime stars of basketball who came up together, who actually played against each other in a national championship game in college, and apparently they didn't like each other very much. And one was white and one was black. One was white and one was black. So it's like waiting, 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 building, 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 building. When are we getting
1: Ali Frazier?
0: Right, when are we getting Ali Frazier? And this was really—that's great that this was the NBA's Ali Frazier. Jeff, once (laughs) again— We've had a conversation, and I've learned things. My pleasure.
1: So I'm now joined by retired NBA legend, actor, my friend, and a fan of Winning Time, that's the most important thing, Mr. Baron Davis. BD, thank you for coming on. What's up, man? It's good to talk to you, brother. So the most important thing, the, the thing I'm most curious about How you liking the show this season, man? I just like the acting. Like, just the
3: mannerism of the players, being a kid in L.A. and being able to see, one, like, the L.A. I grew up in. Yeah. You know what I mean? From the style, the clothes. It's almost, like, real.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You
3: know, for me, it's like, I need to binge watch because I'm just, like, you trapped into, like, watching it, and then I'm caught into my own ideology, right, right, of what I went through. You know, I'm looking at Solomon Hughes. You know, right. that's my dog. Yeah. And I'm like,
1: damn, this dude looks just like Kareem. Look just like Kareem. Sounds like Kareem,
3: yeah. Sound like even all. And yeah. I'm freaking out. Like, I'm freaking out. It's like being in a time warp.
1: Being an L.A. dude, though, what's your relationship to the Showtime Lakers? So, look, I was born
3: April 13th. 1979. Oh, shit. okay. In Los Angeles, California. So I was born with a ring. So when Magic got to L.A., that's when Beanie got to L.A.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so both you know, of y'all came to L.A. at the same time. Yeah, Came to L.A. at the same time. <laughs> both of y'all was drafted.
3: He was drafted to L.A., you were drafted to L.A. in life. Yeah. I was definitely drafted to L.A. in life, and so... Like, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, right. right? The first three years of my life, you know what I mean? I like yeah. basketball. Year four at Christmas, my grandfather built a basketball court. Okay. In the backyard. Right. That was history. Every time there was a Lakers game, every time Chick was getting off, every time Magic was getting off, I was a little kid in the backyard that would never go to sleep
1: kind of <laughs> doing that. So let me ask you this, man. For a dude that not only grew up in the area, but made it to the NBA, when you see what we do on the show, is it just a TV show or is it something that rings with some degree of truth to what you experienced as an NBA player?
3: You know, it's heightened. You know what I mean? It's heightened. I feel like the great thing about Winning Time, is like, it's a theatrical performance. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. And it paints a picture that is giving a take on something. Right. Like storyline, hitting. Characters, hitting. Space, energy, vibes, style, hitting. If you are watching this trying to pick it apart and dissect it to be reality. Right. You're not watching a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Go watch a documentary. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like I half do. the time they in too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did Magic ask to be traded? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All that shit, like that's real. These stories are here to be crystallized, for us to be able to see that, you know what I mean, in a space and an energy that gets you fired up. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I'm watching it, like damn, dude. Like what would I have done? But to know the outcome is also like the beauty of it.
1: Yeah, let's talk about magic a little bit, man. Because I, I guess in today's world, you have so many seven footers that can bring the ball up the floor and shooting threes. But for a guy coming into the league in '79, six nine, and didn't have the ball taken away from him, how revolutionary was that? It's like what we're
3: watching with Steph Curry Mm
1: -hmm.
3: It's what we've watched with LeBron, and it's also what we saw in Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. So if you think about all three of those players, you say Michael Jordan was a show, he was unstoppable, he was a winner. LeBron James, charismatic, marketable, a winner. Steph Curry- Game changer, revolutionary player, changes the whole style and a position the way people wanted to play. Magic Johnson is that dude. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I had a podcast, it's called Point Guard, and I asked all the dope point guards, I mean, I'm talking about Isaiah, Nick Van Exel, if you can replace any point guard in any era and put yourself in their place, who would it be? And if anybody says the Los Angeles Lakers, if you hear that, they always say, but we got to keep Magic. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know what I mean? Who are your favorite five point guards of all time? Magic Johnson is the first thing that come out of their mind. He made the ball disappear. He brought a level of energy, of culture, of flash. Like, it wasn't rock and roll no more. Right. You know what I mean? It wasn't we will rock you anymore. It was like control. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, hip-hop started to play into it. R&B played into it. You were watching a basketball player, but it was almost like you were watching an artist. Everybody else was out there playing basketball, trying to win championships. Magic Johnson was out there making art. He was making entertainment.
1: You know, beyond the style of play and the art, what do you think made him so good? And before you answer... One thing that I've come to understand about brothers like you, Rick Fox, just guys I've gotten to know, there's another level of competitiveness. I don't know if it's like a mental illness, but y'all are so competitive that it's like you have to win. It's otherworldly. Do you think that factored into magic beyond the artistry? or Do you know what I'm saying? Just that level of competitiveness. Yeah, it's an anxiety,
3: and it's an anxiety that ultimately you have a control of. Okay. And then there is a mental aspect that says, I'm the smartest person out here. Mm. So I can actually control the time, the score, the energy, how people think, how people react. The power is in my hand. And so if you think about from a point guard perspective or even a superstar perspective is really like a dictatorship.
1: Yeah, very much so.
3: And then if you look at somebody like Magic, it's like, okay, he's the dictator and then he's also the scientist. So as the coach is over there thinking, he's thinking and doing in real time in order to see what's happening so the coach can give him information so he can also, like, he has to give the information to the players faster than the coach.
1: So... In this episode, we saw Norm Nixon get traded to the Clippers. You've been traded before. yeah. What does it feel like? Uh, I remember Rick Fox telling me one time he found out on the radio that he got traded.
3: Dude, it's a cold game when you get traded.
1: Exactly. What does it feel like when you get traded, especially from someplace you really like being at?
3: Yeah, I would say, like, watching that and and thinking about Norm's situation, right, is— that's your squad. Exactly. You just won, bro. You just yeah. been to the mountaintop, and it's like, shit, me and Magic? What? Yeah. With Cat back? You yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. like, man, you counting championships. You just coming in like, yo, I got to do my thing. You know what I mean? Yes. And to have that snatched away, and then to be traded, you know what I mean, to the Clippers at that. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're going to always feel heartbroken, right? That's where the business side of it, that's where, like, the janky shit, you immediately find out it's a business. You immediately find out that you have no control over your fate. Wow. And then now you have to take the angst, the anxiety, the embarrassment of I was here, now I'm here. And now you have to start all the way from the bottom.
1: Wow. Because you still have to perform regardless of where they send you. You still have to play. Yeah. Now who you playing with is the question. Exactly. you waking up every
3: day like, man, I'm about to practice with Magic, Kareem. Like, now you waking up like, man, who is on the team? <laughs>
1: and I'm a Laker. Like, you know, the idea of being a Laker. I'm a Laker. You know.
3: and I, like, there's nothing
1: like being a Laker in L.A. Right.
3: Everybody feel like they play for the Lakers. They don't feel like they—they ain't no Laker fans. They feel like
1: they actually played on the team. They do. The fan base is a little bit, you know, uh, I won't say nuts, but the fan base gets to a place where they're very, very connected to the team. Walking away from a Lakers game, like when you're walking back to your car and you hear the fans talking, it does feel like they're talking about members of their family. Yeah, for real. Yeah, there is a connection that's there.
3: That Laker thing is something different, dude. Yeah. I never played for the Lakers. I mean, I wish one game I would have played for the <laughs> Lakers. Shit. I used to tell the Clippers like, hey, man, y'all know I'm a Laker fan. You know, deep down inside, <laughs> shit. I'm a Laker fan.
1: One thing that we talk about a little bit but don't spend a lot of time on is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's age.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, at the 83 finals, he was 36. Can you talk about, like, the evolution of, you know, Just age in the NBA.
3: You know, father time is, you know, the one thing. It's undefeated. And they always say, you know, the best ability is availability. Yes. And so if you can stay out there, if you can keep up, Mm -hmm. it don't matter how old you are. And I want to tip my hat and say, one, how great Kareem (laughs) Abdul-Jabbar is. How dominant he was. Because from age, let's say, 35 to 41, he was still the focal point of the offense. He was still a big part of the offense. So if you look at, you know, it's almost like you marvel at what LeBron is doing in year 20 and 21. Like, that's the way we looked at Kareem. And so his dominance from his rookie season to basically the His very last game, he was, if not the best player on the floor, the most dominant player on the floor. And, you know, just tip my hat to the captain because I don't think he gets enough love for, like, the weapon he was. Like, he was a a weapon, dude.
1: Yeah. He was a deadly weapon. You almost took it for granted because he was so good so consistently that he was just there. You know what I mean?
3: How about this, Rodney? If I was a point guard and I had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on my team, I would pass him the ball every time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are you going to have double-digit assists? Nobody can
3: stop him. Yeah. He can swing right, shoot left, swing, baseline, spit. Oh, come on, dude. And this is at 36. What do you attribute that longevity to? I think discipline. Okay. You are the deadliest weapon. There's no, like... Who else got a weapon like you? Yeah. Here it comes. Yeah. Boom! Yeah. Two points. Two points. Spin move. You know what I mean? Yeah. To have something that deadly and have multiple counters off of that
1: creates dominance. So, next episode, we're going to see the 1984 finals between the Lakers and the Celtics. Uh Uh-oh. Can you speak about what those two franchises, what that war was like and what it meant to you as a Lakers fan what did it mean to you?
3: It was going to pretty much dictate my whole summer. Mm-hmm. Right? It was going to lay out the game plan for my whole summer. If the, Celtics... <laughs> if the Celtics won, like, damn, it ain't nobody on the Celtics that I can pattern my game after. You know right. what I mean? Yes. And so I'm about to be miserable. Everybody going to be miserable. The barbecue ain't gonna be good. You know
1: what I mean? Like, <laughs> you ain't want be ML Yeah. <laughs> Hell, no.
3: Hell no. Hell no, man. Only person I wanted to be was Larry Bird, yes. and it was yes. killing me because yes. you know it was killing me. I wanted to be Larry Bird too, because Larry Bird was just—he was devastated. He was. You know what I mean? He, he was. was just so good, and yes. he was like. Larry Bird could be better than everybody out here. Man, there's <laughs> yeah. nothing you could do with Larry Bird. But, like, you know, for me as a kid watching that, it was just like, man, you rooting so hard, right, for the Lakers. You cheering so hard for the Lakers. You want to be Magic. You want to be Kareem. But, like, back then, every play counts. So you couldn't miss a moment, right? So, you know, I I remember I would get mad at my grandma At church, because then, you know, it's like, oh, we stand at church for, you know, we got another service. It's like, no, we don't. Do we have to? come on, man. You know, my church in Compton, I'd have got shot 25 (laughs) times trying to walk out home as a kid. But I would have took that risk. You know what I mean? Just sneaking off, trying to find a TV. You know what I mean? I know. You know somebody had it on in the back. I mean, you know, the Deacons, that's all they was doing. So I became a junior deacon so I could start watching the games on Sunday (laughs) we had double service.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Grandma would understand. (laughs) Ben, thank you very much for spending this time to give us a little bit of insight into um, the NBA, the history, you, and winning time. Um, Really, really appreciate you coming on, and um, we got to get a dinner in at some point. Yeah, man, my trade. Let's do it. I appreciate it, man. Proud of you. Happy for you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I'm now joined by one of the people most responsible for the show's iconic look. He's been on the show for both seasons. Production designer Richard Toyon. Hi, Rodney.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: One of the things we receive the most praise on is that it
2: seems like we capture almost exactly the look of the period. Well, thank you. I also lived through that period, and boy, I remember it well. And I was a huge Lakers fan, and I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and it was kind of smoggy, and it was kind of warm-looking, and our camera department captured it really well. And so, you know, our job is to really kind of get that period in there to make you feel like you're actually in that time period. How important is research? extraordinarily important. Not only do I read written word, but then I will get a hold of books and magazines and on the internet and, and go to our cinema libraries and pull as much as possible. For instance, on the forum, you know, the forum had a particular wood color, had a particular stripe color, had a particular paint color. There's this fellow, um, he is like a self-professed Lakers museum. He has collected this stuff forever. And he happened to have chunks of the actual forum floor that we can match colors to. And so I visited him a few times. And, you know, you talk to other people who actually have been there and have a different perspective. And so you pull all of that together, but, you know, your research carries you through. It really, really does. Talk to me about
1: designing the stadium interior at the forum. Uh, Any particular reference material?
2: Yeah, you know, um, there's this book on the construction of the Forum. And the Forum and Madison Square Garden are essentially the same structure. They were designed by the same architectural firm. And so you could go to one or the other and almost feel like you're there. But one thing that was really important in those photographs were... When the side walls were still open, you could see the level of the parking lot in relation to the level of the playing floor. And the level of the playing floor is about 75 feet lower than the parking lot. Essentially, it's a big hole. And when you look at the forum, the forum doesn't look very big. It looks it's kind of yeah. short. But when you yeah. go inside, man, it's huge. So let's talk about the design inspirations for Pickfair, Dr. Buss's house anything in particular like how daunting a task was that putting it all together you know it was a, it was a good challenge it was really a lot of fun you know pickfair of course is the home of uh, mary pickford and douglas fairbanks and it was uh, originally a hunting lodge in well the hollywood hills which at that time were kind of wild and it had like 43 rooms and so we had to decide really what was the essence of that place? And I laid it out in the original way that it was, and it was, like, way too big for our stage. And so through some manipulation of the spaces and and pushing here and there, um, we created sort of the conglomeration, sort of the core of the house. All of us in the art department really put a huge effort into that. And, and then uh, John Bush, our set decorator, really put an extra emphasis on the mementos of what would be in his house. And, you know, I really appreciate the detail that John Bush, our prop master Chris Call, and and others, what detail they put into it, and really the level of dedication of that.
1: We have a winning team on winning Yeah, time.
2: man, we do. I know, I agree.
1: What's your favorite detail of pickfair <laughs> uh,
2: I really loved the game room because I, I love the masculinity of the place. Through some reading and some research, we, you know, we kind of found that Jerry always admired Hugh Hefner. That's where I was going next. So yeah. I'm
1: glad you went there. Baby. Yeah,
2: yeah. And taking it over, he was trying to make his own sort of Playboy mansion. And so the game room was, you know, something to him that was really important. It's where people kind of hung out and where they had a drink and where they played games and just having a good time together. And so for him, that was really important. And everything else was kind of ancillary. So we put that room in the middle of everything else. You know, one of my favorite parts about what you do is like when we design
1: a stadium floor or a stadium in general, even though it's not the form and primarily what changes is the logo for the other team and all of that, it still feels like a different place, even though not a whole lot has
2: changed. Yeah. That's my favorite aspect of what it is that you do. Yeah, you know, and there's there's a lot of subtlety in all of those arenas and some of it comes not only in colors and logos, but also, you know, we would do our research and then find exactly what the local radio stations were who would advertise at the local arenas in those days and sometimes it was plumbing shops, sometimes it was cigarettes and sometimes it was beer. And so, all of those things really kind of had to play into it. And then, on top of that, the way it was lit, I think, was really important. You know, it was a real combination of things, and including uh, the actual players themselves and what they were wearing and, and then what all the people were wearing. Like, in Hollywood... Things were much more glittery and fewer coats. And then you would go to the Spectrum or some other in Boston or wherever else. And a lot of people were wearing heavier things and duller looking things. And through their visual expression, they helped to support where you are.
1: Certainly for Boston.
2: Boston. (laughs) Yeah, certainly for Boston. Yeah. Rich,
1: thank you for all of that. Thank you for all that you do, and um, thank you for being a really huge part of Winning Time and um, creating some really great spaces for us to play in.
2: Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate being here. I really appreciate talking to you, and I really appreciate doing the show.
1: Thanks for listening to the official Winning Time podcast. A special thank you to our guests, author Jeff Perlman, Baron Davis, and production designer Richard Toyon. Next week, we'll be back to talk through the season finale and the 1984 finals between the Celtics and the Lakers. New episodes of the podcast come out every Sunday night after the latest episode of Winning Time, which airs on HBO. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Rodney Barnes, and I'll see you next week. The official Winning Time podcast is a production of HBO, Hyperobject Industries and Pineapple Street Studios. Our producers are Bria Mariette, Noah Camuso, and Elliot Adler. Darby Maloney is our editor. Our engineers are Harry Nelson, Davey Sumner, and Jason Richards. Our executive producers at Hyperobject Industries are Harry Nelson and Claire Slaughter, with production support from Zaley Mahoney. Our executive producers from Pineapple Street Studios are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts.